Chapter Sixteen of the Upas Tree by Florence L. Barclay. The Slipperbox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Sixteen. He must remember. Dick arrived very early the next morning, having to be off again by the twelve o'clock train in order to reach that evening the place where he was due to spend Christmas. A telegram from Helen had prepared him for a change in Ronnie, but hardly for the complete restoration of mental balance which he saw in his friend. As they hailed one another at the railway station, Ronnie had breakfasted early in order to meet Dick's train. He had said nothing of his plan to Helen, merely arranging his breakfast hour overnight with the valet. He walked to the station alone, but arrived there, found the valet on the platform. Thought I might be wanted, sir, to carry the doctor's bag. He explained, touching his hat. But just as the train rounded the bend, he remarked, "Better to stand back a little, sir." And took Ronnie firmly by the arm. Ronnie could have knocked him down, but realized that this would be the surest way to find himself more than ever hedged in by precautions. So he stood back in wrathful silence, and as Dick's gay face appeared at the window of a third-class smoker, the valet loosed his hold and disappeared. It may here be recorded that this was the last time Ronnie saw him. Apparently, he found it necessary to carry Doctor Dick's bag all the way back to town. Hello, old chap. Cried Dick, "Hello, Dick," said Ronnie. "This is better than Leipzig, old man. I'm all right. I must give you a new thermometer." "You shall," said Dick. "After Christmas, we'll have a spree together in town and choose it. No need to tell me you're all right, Ronnie. It's writ large on you, my boy. He who runs may read. Well, I wish you'd write it large on other people," said Ronnie as they walked out of the station. "What do you mean, Dick? I'm having a devil of a time." There's a smug chap in a bowler hat who is supposed to be my valet. When I went to bed last night, I found I had a decent room enough, opening out of the sitting room. I was obviously expected to turn in there, asking no questions, so I turned in. But the valet person slept in a room communicating with mine. The latch and the lock of the door between had been tampered with. The door wouldn't shut, so I had to sleep all night with that fellow able to look in on me at any moment. After I had been in bed a little while, I remembered something I had left in the sitting room and wanted. I got up quietly to fetch it. That door was locked on the sitting room side. Poor old boy, we'll soon put that all right. You see, you were pretty bad while you were bad, and all kinds of precautions were necessary. We felt sure of a complete recovery, and I always predicted that it would be sudden. But it is bound to take a little while to get all your surroundings readjusted. Why not go home at once? Pack up and go back to Hollymead this afternoon, and have a real jolly Christmas there. You and Helen and the kid. The kid, queried Ronnie, perplexed. What kid? Oh, you mean my cello, the infant of Prague. Dick, meanwhile, had bitten his tongue severely. Yes, the jolly old infant of Prague, of course. Is it he, she, or it? I forget. It replied Ronnie gravely. In the peace of its presence, one forgets all wearying he and she problems. Yes, I want most awfully to get back to my cello. I want to make sure it is not broken, and I want to make sure it is no dream that I can play. But I don't want to go unless I can go alone. Can't you prescribe some solitude as being absolutely essential for me, Dick? I'm wretched. I don't care where I go, but I want to get away by myself. Why, old man? Because my wife still considers me insane, nonsense, Ron. And don't talk of being insane. You were never that. 
Some subtle malarial poison, we shall never know what, got into your blood, affected your brain, and you've had a bad time, a very bad time, of being completely off your balance, the violent stage being followed by loss of memory, and for a time, though mercifully you knew nothing about it, complete loss of sight. But these things returned, one by one, and, as soon as you were ready for it, you awoke to consciousness, memory, and reason. There is no possible fear of the return of any of the symptoms, unless you come again in contact with the poison, hardly likely, as it attacked you in Central Africa. Of course, as I say, we shall never know precisely what the poison was. Then Ronnie spoke, suddenly. It was the upas tree, he said. I camped near it. My nightmares began that night. I never felt well from that hour. Rubbish, said Dr. Dick. More likely a poisonous swamp. The upas tree is a myth. Not at all, insisted Ronnie. It is a horrible reality. I had seen one in the Kew Gardens. I recognized it directly, yet I camped in its shadow. Dick, do you know what the upas stands for? What? Selfishness. It stands for anyone who is utterly, preposterously, altogether selfish. Oh, buck up, old man, cried Dick. We are all selfish, every mother's son of us. Perhaps that's why. Most men's mothers spoil them, and their wives continue the process. But you will be selfish with a vengeance if you don't buck up and give that splendid wife of yours a good time now. She's been through. Such a lot. Ronnie, you will never quite realize. Well, I never knew such a woman, excepting, perhaps, Mrs. Dalmain, and of course she was not your wife's beauty. I haven't the smallest intention of ever coming under the yoke myself, but I assure you, old chap, if you had pegged out, as you once or twice seem likely to do, I should have had a jolly good try as to whether I couldn't chip in by and by. Confound you, said Ronnie, but he laughed and felt better. Dr. Dick saw Helen alone. Well, he said, so we've pulled him through. Ronnie's all right now. No more need for watching and planning and guarding. In fact, the less he realizes the precautions which were necessary, the better. I shall take Truscott back to town with me. He seems to have done awfully well. I suppose you have no complaints. Why don't you hire a car and run straight back home with Ronnie this afternoon? Think what a jolly Christmas you might have. Show him the boy as a Christmas present. I believe he is keen to be at home, and the less you thwart him now, the better. Don't suggest it until I am gone, but send a wire home at once to say you are probably returning this afternoon. Then your people will make all the needed preparations for the festive day, turkeys and holly, and all that sort of thing. Have fires lighted everywhere, and all in readiness. My old sweetheart, Mrs. Blake, will put on cherry-colored ribbons and black satin, and be in the hall to receive you. You had better mention, in the wire, that I am not coming, then she won't waste her time hanging mistletoe in likely corners. Helen wrote the telegram, rang, and gave it to a page. Then she turned to Dr. Dick. Ronnie is not fully himself yet, she said. Dick looked at her keenly. How so? He professes to remember, and does remember, everything which happened, up to the final crash in the studio. Yet he has made no mention to me of... of our child. He is shy about it, suggested Dick. You speak first. I cannot, she replied. It is for Ronald to do that. Ah, you dear women, moralized the young bachelor. You remind me of Nebuchadnezzar. No, I mean Naaman. You bravely ford the rushing waters of your Abinas and your Farpars, 
and then you buck-jump at the little river Jordan. My dear Dick, I am becoming accustomed to the extraordinary inaptness of your scriptural allusions, but this is hardly a small matter between me and Ronnie. I am ready to make every allowance for his illness and loss of memory, but I don't see how I can start a life with him at home, until he manages to remember a thing of such vital importance to our wedded life. He may be sane on every other point, but I cannot consider him sane on this. Shall I tell him? suggested Dick. No. Let him remember. He can remember the infant of Prague. His mind is full of that again. Why should he not be able to remember my baby's son? Oh, Lor! sighed Dr. Dick. Why not put that poser to Ronnie direct, instead of putting it to me? Forgive me for saying so, but you are suffering just now from a reaction, after the terrible strain through which you have passed. And Ronnie is wretched, too, because he remembers how you let fly at him that evening, and he thinks you really meant it. I did, said Helen. Of course, had I known how ill he was, poor old boy, I should have been more patient. But I have a little son to consider now, as well as Ronnie. I did think him selfish, and I do. My dear angel, said Dr. Dick, we are all selfish, every mother's son of us, and it is you blessed women who make us so. She looked at him with softening eyes. You are not selfish, Dick, she said. I am, he answered, and a long chalk worse than Ronnie. I combine ambition with my selfishness. I jolly well mean to get to the top of the tree, and I don't care how I get there. I down every one who dares stand in my way, or I use them as stepping stones. There, isn't that a worse upas tree than poor old Ronnie's? Mine is a life untouched by love or any gentler feelings. All that sort of thing was killed in me when I was quite a little chap. It is the story of a broken halo. Perhaps I'll tell it to you some day. Meanwhile, this being Christmas Eve and not Ash Wednesday, I'll make no more confessions. Don't you want to hear the result of my psychic investigations concerning our mirror experiences? Exceedingly, said Helen. Have you time to tell me now? Heaps of time. It won't take long. Last night I told the whole story to a man who makes a special study of these matters, and knows more about things psychic than any other man in England. The Brands asked me to dinner, and arranged to have him also. After dinner he and I went down alone to the doctor's consulting room, and talked the whole thing out. I was careful to mention no names. You don't want to be credited with a haunted room at the Grange. Neither do we want Ronnie's name mixed up with psychical phenomena. Now I will give you this man's opinion and explanation— exactly as he gave it to me. Only, remember, I pass it on as his. I do not necessarily endorse it. He holds that inanimate objects, such as beds, walls, cupboards, staircases, have a power of receiving, absorbing, and retaining impressions transmitted to them through contact with human minds in extreme conditions of stress and tension. This would especially be the case with intimately personal things, such as musical instruments or favorite chairs. Old rooms and ancient furniture might retain these impressions for centuries and, under certain circumstances, transmit them to any mind with which they came in contact, happening to be strung up to the right key to respond to the psychic impression. He considers that this theory accounts for practically all ghost stories and haunted rooms, passages, and staircases. It reduces all apparitions to the subjective rather than the objective plane, in other words, the spirit of a murdered man does not return at certain times to the room in which he was done to death, but his agonized mind, in its last conscious moments, 
left an impress on that room which produces a subjective picture of the scene, or part of the scene, upon any mind psychically in rapport with that impress. I confess this idea appeals to me. It accounts for the undoubted fact that certain old rooms are undeniably creepy, also that apparitions, unconnected with actual flesh and blood, have been seen by sane and trustworthy witnesses. It does away with the French word for ghost, revenant. There is no such thing as a comer-back, or an earth-bound spirit. Personally, I do not believe in immortality, in the usually accepted sense of the word, but I have always felt that were there such a thing as a disembodied spirit, it would have something better to do than to walk along old corridors, frightening housemaids. But, to come to the point, concerning our own particular experience, I carefully told him every detail. He believes that probably the old Florentine chair and the cello had been in conjunction before, and had both played their part in the scene which was re-enacted in the mirror. If so, poor old Ron was jolly well in for it, seated in the chair and holding the cello. His already overexcited brain found itself caught between them. The fitful firelight in the large mirror supplied excellent mediums for the visualization of the subjective picture. Of course, we do not yet know what Ronnie saw. I trust we never shall. It is to be hoped he has forgotten it. Had you and I seen nothing, we should unquestionably have dismissed the whole thing as merely a delirious nightmare of Ronnie's unhinged brain. But the undoubted fact remains that we each saw, reflected in that mirror, objects which were not at that moment in the room. In fact, we saw the past reflected, rather than the present. My psychic authority considers that both our impressions came to us through Ronnie's mind, and were already fading, owing to the fact that he had become unconscious. I, coming in later than you, merely saw the Florentine chair in position. All else, in my view of the reflection, appertained to the actual present, into which the long-ago past was then rapidly merging. But you, coming in a few minutes sooner, and being far more en rapport with the spirit of the scene, saw the tall man in a red cloak, whom you call the Avenger, strangling the girl. By the way, why do you call him the Avenger? Because, said Helen slowly, there was murder in the cruel face of the woman, and there was a dagger in her hand. She had struck her blow before he appeared upon the scene. I know this, because it was the flare of his crimson cloak, as he rushed in, which first caught my eye in the firelight and made me look into the mirror at all. Before that I was intent on Ronnie. The avenger seized the woman from behind. I saw his brown hands on the whiteness of her throat. Grief and horror were on his face as he looked over her shoulder and passed the chair at the prostrate heap upon the floor. "'Which heap?' said Dick, trying to speak lightly. "'Was our poor Ronnie?' "'No,' said Helen, gazing straight before her into the fire. "'The heap upon the floor was not Ronnie.' "'But I am positive.' I saw it myself. I saw you kneeling beside it. I helped to sort it, afterwards. The actual heap on the floor was the broken chair, Ronnie mixed up with it, and, on top of both, that unholy infant, whose precocious receptivity is responsible for the entire business. I exonerate the Florentine chair. I exonerate poor Ronnie. I shall always maintain that that confounded cello worked the whole show out of its own unaided tummy." But Helen did not laugh. She did not even smile. The heap on the floor was not Ronnie, she repeated firmly. 
nor was I kneeling beside it. The Italian chair had not fallen over. Not a single thing appertaining to the present was reflected in the picture as I first saw it. Dick, there was a conclusion to my vision of which I have never told you. Oh, Lor, said Dick, when I guaranteed the psychic chap that I was putting him in full possession of every detail. I am sorry, Dick, but until this moment I have never felt able to tell you. I cannot do so now unless you are nice. I am nice, said Dick, very nice. Tell me quick. Well, as I knelt transfixed, watching, the heap on the floor moved in a rose. It was a slight, dark man with a white face and a mass of tumbled black hair. He lifted from off his breast as he got up a violoncello. He did not look at the woman, nor at the man in the crimson cloak. He stood staring, as if petrified with grief and dismay, at his cello. Following his eyes, I saw a dark, jagged stab, piercing its right breast, just above the F-hole. The anguish on the cellist's face was terrible to see. Then, oh, Dick, I don't know how to tell you. Go on, Helen, he said gently. Then he turned from the cello and looked at me. And, Dick, it was the soul of Ronnie, my Ronnie, in deepest trouble over his infant of Prague, which looked at me through those deep, sad eyes. I cannot explain to you how I knew it. He was totally unlike my big, fair Ronnie, but it was the soul of Ronnie, in great distress, looking at me. The moment I realized this, I seemed set free from the past. The cellist, the woman, the avenger, all vanished instantly. I saw myself reflected. I saw you. I saw the studio. I saw Ronnie on the floor. I turned to him at once, lifted the cello from his breast, and drew his head into my lap. Was there a jagged hole? No, not a scratch. The stab belonged to a century ago. But listen, Dick. Several days later, when I had a moment in which to remember Ronnie's poor infant of Prague, I examined it in a good light, and found the place where the hole made by that dagger had been skillfully mended. Lor, said Dick, we're getting on. Don't you think you and I and the infant might put our heads together and write a psychic book? But now, seriously, do you really believe that Ronnie was once a slim, pale person with a shock of black hair? And if he and his infant lived together in past ages, where were you and I? Are we all together out of it? Or are you the lady with the dagger, and I the noble party in the flaming cloak? She smiled, and a look of quiet peace was in her eyes. Dick, she said, I am not troubled at all about the past. My whole concern is with the present. My earnest looking forward is to the future. And remember, that which set me completely free to think only of the present was when my Ronnie's soul looked out at me from the strange vision of the past. I cannot say exactly what I believe, but I know my entire responsibility is to the present. My hope and confidence are towards the future. I realize, as I have never realized it before, the deep meaning of the words, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. I am content to leave it at that. Dick sat silent, sobered, impressed, by a calm confidence of faith, which was new to him. Then he said, Good for you, Helen, that you can take it so. Personally, I believe in nothing which I cannot fully explain and understand. Faith, in your sense of the word, has no place in my vocabulary. 
I was a very small boy when my faith took to itself wings and flew away, and curiously enough, it was while I was singing lustily in the village church at Dinglevale, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. It will come back again, said Helen. Dick, I know it will come back. Some day you will come to me and you will say, it has come back. The thrusting hand and the prying finger are the fashion nowadays, I know, but the grand old faith, which will win out in the end, is the faith which stands with clasped hands, in deepest reverence of belief, and, lifting adoring eyes, is not ashamed to say to the revelation of the risen Christ, My Lord and my God. Dick stirred uneasily in his chair. We have gotten off the subject, he said, and it is about time we looked up Ronnie. But, first of all, how much of all this do you mean to tell Ronnie? Nothing whatever, if I can help it, replied Helen. So far as I know, I hope, after this morning, never to mention the subject again. I think you are wise, and now let me give you a threefold bit of advice. Smash the mirror, burn the chair, brain the infant. Helen laughed. No, no, Dick, she said. I can do none of those things. I must take tenderest care of Ronnie's infant. I have had his valuable chair carefully mended, and I must not let him think I fear the mirror. You're a brave woman, said Dick. Believing what you do, you're a brave woman to live in the house with that mirror. Or, perhaps, it comes of believing so much. A certainty of confidence which asks no questions must be to some extent a fortifying thing. By the way, you will remember that long rigmarole I gave you was not my own explanation, but the expert's. Mine is considerably simpler and shorter. In fact, it can be summed up in three words. What is your explanation, Dick? Whiskey and soda, said Dr. Dick bravely. You mixed it stiffer than you knew. I was dead beat and had had no food. I have always been a fairly abstemious chap. In my profession we have to be. Woe betide the man who isn't. But since I saw that chair standing on four legs in the mirror, when it was lying broken on the floor in reality, I have not touched a drop of alcohol. There. I make you a present of that for your next temperance meeting. Now, let's go out and buck Ronnie up. Remember, he'll feel jolly flat for a bit, with no temperature. Temperature is a thing you miss when it has become a habit. End of chapter 16